0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, a man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Monday, February the 25th, and this is episode 1077 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday. As I said earlier, so that means we're going to do your feedback. This is all questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, ideas, videos, news articles, etc. Sent to me at jack at the survival with email for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, something with the words for Jack, following it, just three words like that. You do that, it goes into the special folder for priority queue so that it gets uh, vetted for a show like this. I get hundreds of these a day, folks, but uh, I tr- do my best to try to get a variety of them on the air week to week. Before we get to your feedback, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my go-to source for everything, and I mean everything herbal and even everything Uh, To prepare my own herbal uh, concoctions, if I need beeswax or uh, uh, menthol crystals or something like that for a heating rub, uh, I go to Western Botanicals first. They have everything either prepared or the individual components. 100% of what you're going to get at Western Botanicals is either organically grown or wild crafted. You know, you're getting the best quality from real people that really care. If you have any questions, you call them up and they'll help you out you want to save some money there, they have a premium membership. It's 50 bucks a year. You get 25% off everything for that price, so it would pay for itself. But if you are a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, you get that membership for free for its first year, and if you want to keep it after that, it's half price. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Harvest Eating, the awesome Chef Keith Snow, who will teach you to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a life skill. Chef Keith uh, focuses on technique over recipe, though he does have some amazing recipes. He's also got some amazing seasoning mixes. Uh, And, you know, when you buy any of his seasonings or his sauces or anything like that, you're you're getting organic product. You're getting artesian-made, you know, cheese in the sauces, for instance. Uh, You're getting the best stuff you can get, grown right here, made right here in America. Check him out today, harvesteating.com. And make sure to check out his podcast while you're there and subscribe to that. He has a great podcast. Next up, remember to check out tspgear.com for some really cool gear. I will have the discount code put into the member support brigade this week, um, probably today or tomorrow, for uh, members to start getting a discount at tspgear.com. And uh, check out tspmint.com. We have some really cool uh, coins at the Mint beyond the TSP Ant coins. Check out the Second Amendment silver coins at tspmint.com. I think you'll be really impressed, and you can get them for the same great price. MSB members, only a ninety nine per coin over silver spot price, and 2 dollars over spot for everybody that's not a member. That's great pricing anywhere on any silver product you can think of under the sun. I uh, also want to remind you real quick about 13skills.com. We had a lot of people up in New Hampshire talking to us about what they're doing for their 13 skills. We'd love you to join us over there, too. And uh, Dorothy and I owe our uh, programmer, David Larson, uh, a report back on his proposal for like a version 1.1, which is going to be much cooler. We just couldn't fit it in in our schedule over the weekend. If you can hear my voice is a little hoarse. I just spent the last three, four days talking to people. I gave four, uh, three speeches in two days. Uh, but I'm going to do my best for you guys here today. And hopefully um, I'll give you guys a good show. Even if I am a little hoarse, I expect my voice will be doing just fine by tomorrow. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'd like to go ahead and get into today's show. Uh, first up for you, I have a little follow-up from uh, our good friend, an expert council member that takes uh, some of the questions on permaculture, uh, ones that I want his uh, diverse opinion on because sometimes he and I disagree, and that's the main reason I made him as a, a, a permaculture uh, expert member of the panel. Because we have some disagreements, and I think it's good that you guys give both sides of the story. One thing we agree on, though, is rocket mass heater technology just being awesome. So Paul has been running a Kickstarter, uh, which if you don't know about Kickstarter, it's basically a place where entrepreneurs can go. And they can say, like, I have a project I want to launch, and I want your help in doing it. And he has video from a, a huge workshop they did on rocket mass heaters, rocket mass uh, wood-burning stoves, etc., and uh, he set a goal to raise $18,000 for the production of four DVDs, and they've raised over $31,000. And he said, I want to keep going. And I said, Paul, you've got double what you've requested. Why do you want to keep going? And he said, um, well, here's some reasons. With more funds, we can get even better graphics and animation done to a better end product. We're not sure yet if we'll sell the DVDs outside of the Kickstarter. If we do, they'll probably cost more than they do for people that donate the hundred bucks on Kickstarter. The most powerful thing a person can do to prepare for the future is build knowledge. This is something that can be built from junk, it uses one tenth the wood of conventional efficient wood stoves and provides heat without giving away your position. This knowledge is for use if times get tough or even if they don't. If folks follow the link from the survival podcast, And Survival Podcast in total uh, contributes $4,000. I will list Jack and the Survival Podcast as Supreme Executive Producer with bacon, cheese, and sparkles complete with a soundtrack of cheering at the beginning and the end of the DVDs and say it on the boxed set for the DVDs. (laughs) I like the idea this is not charity. You don't give money and hope things will work out. I like the idea that you are buying something in advance, there's no bank making business loans. Plus, if you do, do like giving money to charity, I cannot think of anything in the world that will do more good than this. Buying my stuff furthers my empire to build a better world one brick at a time. Uh, I like the idea this information becomes well known. It could eliminate fracking and greatly reduce other energy-based pollutants. I'm tired of other people polluting the air I breathe and the water I drink. I suspect this could reduce energy-based wars. Nobody should buy this for me for the sake of the idea that it makes me richer, but it does make me richer, and I like that. (laughs) Hey, he's he's trying to make a profit guy selling DVDs, and he's honest about it. If we can cross the $100,000 mark for this Kickstarter, I think it adds a level level of legitimacy to this technology and to all of my projects. Last month, I tried to give advice to a youngster putting together a Rocket Mass heater DVD, and he didn't take my advice. I like the idea of... Gleaning 10 times more after his effort. Showing that there might be some value in listening to this ugly old geezer. 10. If this is a more sustainable way to heat a conventional home, I would very much like to hear about it. In other words, this is it. Rocket mass heaters is just part of it. There is fire science, rocket hot water, J-tube rocket stove, the poor man's forge, the pocket rockets, and more. And, uh, you know... I will add something to it. I do think if Paul's able to raise $100,000 for this project on Kickstarter, it's going to get a lot of media attention around Rocket Stoves. And that's going to get stories about them into mainstream media all over the place and start making questions. uh, People ask questions about sustainability, and I think that's awesome. And I'll tell you that Paul is not... Just like running a Kickstarter and then asking people like me and from his forum to let people know about this. He's actually hired a PR firm. He's taking a very professional approach to this. So if he does get the media contacts, he's going to be able to follow through with some really great uh, stories, updates, interviews, and things like that. Uh, so check him out. Paul is a great friend. Like I said, he and I don't always agree, but I think on this one he's got a winner. And I'm glad to be a backer, and I'd like to ask you to consider being a backer as well. Look at it this way: if you go there and donate the hundred bucks, call it a donation. An investment is a better word. And invest a hundred bucks, then when the DVDs are produced, you get a four DVD set. So you're getting a four DVD set of these uh, awesome DVDs for 25 bucks a DVD. Uh, you're just waiting a little longer than if you were to order them off the shelf. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a great way. That's, what I agree about Kickstarter. It's not charity. It's a way for private citizens to fund causes they believe in. And uh, this is one I believe in, and I'd appreciate your support. If you have the means and if it makes sense for you right now, I'm not saying everybody do it. I'm saying those of you that, uh, that want to see me listed as, what did he say I would be? Um, executive, Supreme Executive Producer with Bacon, Cheese, and Sparkles. If you want to see me listed that way, pitch in. Apparently, Paul can track... Where, uh, visitors to the site come from. So click on the link in the survival podcast, which kickstarted today, if you want to make a donation. Um, the next question, uh, clearly comes from the presentation I gave on bug out bags at, uh, the Liberty Forum in New Hampshire. Uh, I don't know whether it's somebody that was there, uh, or somebody that just got the deck that I used, the PowerPoint deck I put up on, on the website. And looked at it and saw the slide about this, but it 's basically from John and John says, "Please explain the benefits of tarred twine over five hundred and fifty parachute cord um, let 's start out with the concept that a lot of people if you're if you 're building a mini kit, for instance, um, then maybe part of your mini kit is you have a paracord bracelet, and maybe that holds ten feet of paracord." And, yeah, you can take it apart and you can splice the inner lines together and get something similar but not anywhere near as strong as the tarred twine once you're splicing those together. Um, But it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And if you've ever taken one of those bracelets apart, it takes a while. So maybe you put a 50-foot hank of parachute cord into your your kit. Maybe you put maybe a 100-foot hank of it into your bug-out bag or something like that, and you think you're good and set to go. But if you actually get into a point where you're building structures and stuff like that, you may find yourself needing far more than a 100 feet of it pretty quickly. Uh, you'll also find the inner strands are white, and it means they're highly visible. So if you want to do something like make snares or something out of it, it's probably not the best material for that because high visibility is the last thing. You want black, which is what um, the tarred twine looks like when you're using it for snares and things like that. Looks much more like just basic debris that's in the forest already or in the woods already. So, from a wilderness standpoint, right there we have a huge advantage. But when I started out with, you know, maybe 50 feet in a a small kit or 100 feet in a bug-out bag, it it doesn't take up that much room, but it's it's pretty bulky. A hundred feet of tarred twine you could wrap around a pencil, and, and it wouldn't make the pencil anything from a skinny pencil into a fat pencil. You can get a thousand yards of tarred twine on a on a roll, and uh, to do that, you will pay about ten fifteen bucks, and it will weigh a little less than a pound It officially is listed as a pound, but I think they 're rounding it off because i 've weighed one, and it was like fourteen point five ounces. Um, now, you want to make sure you get actual tarred twine. I would not recommend that you order it off the Internet. I would recommend that you find a place somewhere that sells it. You can go to the store, and if it's wrapped in cellophane, I would even, it might upset the store manager, but I would pull the cellophane off in at least in a little spot, and I would feel it. And if it isn't genuinely sticky, it's not real tarred twine. And there's n- nylon twine out there from various sources that it's not sticky. You want it to be sticky because this is my next advantage when it comes to tying things and lashing things. Parachute cord doesn't tie up really, really well. It's it's designed to basically be uh, sewed into uh, parachute rigging. That's what it's for. It's very, very strong. 550 pound test uh, as it sits, and that's great. But nylon, uh, the nylon twine, uh, while not as strong as paracord, is plenty strong for all the kind of things you would do with it. But I think if you would do this, I think if you would go out and, and say, construct a lean-to and use, uh, paracord for one and you, you know, for doing a couple of the bindings and use, uh, the nylon tarred twine for doing some of the other bindings, you'll quickly see how much easier it is to work with when you're binding material together, which is going to be the main use you're going to have for cordage, uh, in a survival or a preparedness or an emergency situation. It's for binding. It's not for raising and lowering human beings. You're not going to do a whole lot of um, self-affected rescue using parachute cord to climb up. Even though it has the strength, it's too narrow to be used as like a rescue rope and all but the most... Uh, precarious, and that's the only thing you got. Situations, um, you can put a handle on it or something like that, but then your point of failure becomes the handle if you're not sure of the strength of the handle. And I just wouldn't want to try to drag somebody up a cliff face with a, you know a single strand of parachute cord. So if you're in that type of scenario, you should be carrying more of a, of a rope snare. So that 550 pounds of strength only really has so much utility. Now, I don't hate parachute cord. And I think that 50-foot hank of it or so and maybe that bracelet still have a place in your kit and your EDC. I'm just saying when it comes to carrying enough cordage to actually do something with, that in my experience, tarred line is just a much better tool. It is so much better in so many ways that I just recommend it over it. Let's look at a a wilderness or even a semi-rural or even an urban survival situation where you're able to find a creek, or something like that where you can bank fish and you want to set out a whole bunch of limb lines. Limb lines are we find flexible limbs, uh, overhanging creek banks and things like that. And we put out lines with bait on them. And when a fish takes it and they pull it, the, the flexibility of the limb hooks them. And that flexible limb, even if it's a fairly large fish, that fish ain't going nowhere because the branch just keeps giving with them and tires them out. Now, you could easily set a 1,000 of these, okay, uh or oh, that's a thousand of these. I'm ridiculous there. Okay. A hundred of these using a thousand feet, about ten feet apiece. Um that's one roll. And I don't think you'd ever set a hundred of them, but in a you know, maybe, I don't know, in some situations you might. Uh that's a lot of food that you can gather, and as you're gathering the food, the guts from those fish could then be reprocessed as bait to catch more fish. Um doing that with a parachute cord would be much more difficult. All you would really need to be able to make your fishing lines very, very quickly out of this stuff is snelled fishing hooks, and you could carry some mono and do your own snelling, and some snap swivels. Uh, So you tie your tarred line to a snap swivel, and you put your snelled hook on the end of the line. That would be a smart way to do it. What's not really as good a way to do it, because it's a little more obvious to the fish, but if you're fishing for rough fish like catfish and carp, it probably won't matter. All you need is a snap swivel and a hook. So your tarred line goes to your snap swivel, the hook goes right on the snap swivel. You want to use swivels with bank lines, trot lines, and things like that, especially catfish and a lot of other fish will start spinning. Once they give up on the pulling, they start spinning in circles like an alligator or a crocodile. Well, that swivel lets it spin. And it does less damage and less binding up of your cordage. So that's just one scenario. But you'll just find that tarred line binds better, is easier to work with, you can carry more, it weighs less, and it's strong enough for anything that you're going to use this type of cordage for. And because of all of those things, I just think it's preferable to paracord. I could go on, but I won't because I don't want to do a whole show on why tarred twine kicks parachute cord's butt in a survival situation. And I would tell you there's probably some scenarios where parachute cord would be more desirable, like, oh, I don't know if you had enough of it making a rifle sling or a hammock out of it, but, boy, you need a lot of it to do that. So uh, that's my thoughts on that. Let's take another one. Okay, so whenever the subject of biotechnology and uh, genetic modification of different organisms comes up, I always tell you that as bad as it is, my real concern is that it could get worse, and some of these people are maniacs that are behind this this, this genetic science. And they're going to do things that anybody with a brain would look at and go, God, I I really don't think that's a good idea. But they'll tell you it's a good idea. And Scott from Portland sent me one such thing. It's not a story or anything. It's a little expose on a website called fastcoexist.com about a young man whose last name is Provita. He's only 16 years old, and he, apparently he's like one of these super geniuses. And he's already doing work uh, for this biotech-type stuff. And they've got him in a lab coat, and there's a little picture slideshow. You'll have to slide about two or three pictures when you use the link in the show notes to see this particular slide. Let me read it to you. More recently, Provida has started working on the quote, flying syringe, end quote, genetically engineering mosquitoes so that they can produce and deliver a vaccine via their saliva for West Nile virus. Okay, let me, let me put that into Basic Jack Spirico, no-bullshit technology. They're going to screw it around with the genetics of a mosquito so that it actually produces a, a, a vaccine to the virus that it's already spreading. So that when you get bit by a mosquito that's been genetically modified, it will vaccinate you against West Nile virus. Hmm. Think about this. I, I mean, really. What that means... Is that wherever these things are turned loose, you're vaccinating people without their knowledge or their consent using a mosquito? This is biological warfare. Now you can say that, but the intent is good. Ever watch Jurassic Park? I mean, there's a lot of, and we can learn stuff from science fiction. The real world never comes out the same way, but there's a lot of lessons there. Okay. Um, and to be fair, Captain Kirk had a flip phone before most people did. Just, just saying, right? There's a track record of science fiction accurately predicting what happens in the world of scientific fact. But again, this is this is the problem. You're going to alter the genetic structure of this mosquito. To make it have this particular characteristic and you're going to let it go. Do you think it's just going to fly around and vaccinate people and go away and never be seen again? No, it's going to start doing what? It's going to start breeding with other mosquitoes. And it's going to pass on the trait or maybe some other trait. And this is where people need to really understand what we're doing at this genetic level when we start this alteration of the genetic code. The DNA molecule. The best description I can give you of it that would make sense in modern terminology is it's like code for a computer. It's exactly the same as code for a computer. When you write a program, you're laying down this sequence of coding and there's basic commands within any language and it causes a computer or device to behave in a certain way. The DNA molecules in our bodies are assembled to do the same thing our genetic predispositions for certain things, our ability to process food. All of these things are encoded at the genetic level, and every living being has this code. The DNA molecule, in spite of the fact that it only uses four main things to assemble itself, and it it looks like it's not that complex, is the most complicated piece of coding we know of anywhere in the known universe. It is the most sophisticated, eloquent code ever assembled. It is the code... For life okay and for life to replicate itself and to exist and to function it is the code so that you can think okay that's what DNA is. it is the code that runs every living creature from a blade of grass to a human being it is the most sophisticated eloquent thing we can find in my opinion anyway now Science wants you to believe that they can go in there and change a few lines of that code and only get a result that pertains to those lines of code. Here's an experiment. Go find a computer programmer. Okay, Go find a computer programmer, anyone, PHP, Ruby, I don't care what it is. Anybody that is a true, basic, I don't care what they program it, but is capable of writing advanced programming, writing code from the bare bones up. Find anybody like that. And ask them, if you've written a significantly complex program, is it ever possible to change two or three lines of code in that program to make a significant change in the program itself without affecting other lines of code that require you to do more than the average person would think to get the result you desire? And every one of them will roll their eyes and laugh and tell you no. And the reason they'll react that way is because they probably have a job where some guy in marketing or sales that was selling a test piece of test equipment or something like I used to. say well, all we wanted to do was this. How long could that possibly take? We just want to add a date. We just want when somebody prints out the report for it to include a date on it. And you think you just you just put in there you know add date, put a calendar in there and boom. And, and it's like, no, see, it doesn't work that way. Because every line of code has an effect on other lines of code. Now, we're supposed to believe that something as mundane as the computer programming code to run a piece of test equipment that tests computer cabling with a remote on one end and a tester on the other. And it just transmits electricity over wires and says, how does it perform? If we alter any code, we have an effect on other p- components of the code, and they need to be tweaked and peaked out and handled and what have you. But But we, in our arrogance as human beings, believe that we can go in and alter the most sophisticated coding that exists, the DNA structure of life, on a couple lines and not have the same cascading effect. And if you ask a programmer what will happen to the whole program when you do this, if it's not gone through and gone over and balanced out and compensated for, the answer is going to be I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I don't know is okay with a new version of Pac Man. It's not okay with life. So the, rea- the this is a long way of saying this. There's no way of knowing, even if the little flying syringe mosquito they make, okay doesn't have a significant other quirk or personality trait or something that makes it a negative thing for mankind and humanity. Even if we could say for certain we can't, even if we could say that there's no way to know what happens, is that new genetic material propagates throughout the entire species. And I'm telling you, these people are maniacs. You have to be a freaking maniac to think that it's acceptable to alter a mosquito, to deliver a vaccine to people without their knowledge or consent. No matter how you feel about vaccines, and I'm kind of a middle-of-the-road guy, I see a place for some, I think we over-vaccinate in others, I think there's things in some of the vaccines that don't need to be there, I'm not completely, let's never have any vaccine ever again. Some of you guys are like, vaccines are good for us, I believe it, I, it there's no reason you guys are all crazy tinfoil hatters, and some of you think there should be no bad vac- I don't care where you are on that spectrum, at all. How would you feel if instead of the programs that we have in place for vaccinations, even some of the mandatory ones where a person goes in, rolls up their sleeve, they cotton swab you, and they give you a shot with your knowledge, how would you feel if the government decided that everybody needs a vaccine? And, and worse than rounding people up, they, they came up with a program where agents went out at night, pumped knockout gases into houses, right? Came into your home, injected you while you were knocked out, and left, and you never knew that it happened. And we uncovered a plot and it wasn't a conspiracy theory or something like that. It was, it was shown, and agents were coming out and go, I participated in it, I did it. And basically they had a checklist, and they had vaccinated everybody in the country or everybody in a state or everybody in a city with this methodology. And there were people with some side effects and symptoms that never knew. How would you feel about that? Is there anybody out there crazy enough to think that's okay? And when the answer is no, that would be completely unacceptable, tell me how doing it with a mosquito is any different. They're not hiding this. They're very proud of it. They've got this 16-year-old kid in his lab coat. Making the flying syringe to sell it to you is something wonderful. For all I know, this kid really is a genius. Too. He's a nice kid, and he, he's been sold on the idea. For all I know, he's a freaking actor, and he's an idiot, and he couldn't find his ass with his left hand, and they put him there because it's a good PR move. I don't know. But I do know that what they're doing is sick and twisted, and this is not something that we should have going on. Um, I I just don't understand how anybody can think this is acceptable. And I wanted you guys to know about it. So you can look it up on their website. You can see him smiling, and he looks in his little vial with his little purple gloves on. And, boy, you know what? There's a sign behind him. You know what it says? Please lock this door. He wouldn't want any of them to get out. Oh, we're going to... Come on, guys, please. So when you hear me talk about genetic modification... Please understand, it's not just what they're doing, it's what these people intend to do long term. And it's one of the greatest threats to our survival as a species and the planet's survival overall when you start looking at the totality of what these people want to do, mucking around in the genetic code of life. Now that I've totally depressed you and scared the shit out of you, let's uh, go on to something that's a little bit better news. Um, Last Week, I brought to you a list of six ammo manufacturers and resellers, gun manufacturers, things like that. People that sell. Uh, to both civilians and military, law enforcement, etc., that had said to states like New York and California, since you do not respect the rights of your citizens, we don't think your police departments and law enforcement organizations deserve to have anything that civilians do not have. So we will not be selling any of the stuff that you guys um, won't let your citizens have to your police departments. And I said I'd like to see more people come in on this. It was only six. And uh, it's now a list of, I think, 64 I'm gonna read the list really, really fast just to tell you who, uh, <laughs> who's participating. You'll hear some names you know. Ammo Clip, Extreme Firepower, Cheaper Than Dirt, Midway USA, Barrett, Deadbang Guns, Tier 1 Arms, Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Yep. Predator Intelligence, LaRue Tactical, Southwest Shooting Authority, Olympic Arms, Templar Custom, New York Arms, Southern Appalachian Arms, Bullwater Enterprises, West Fork Armory, Iron Goat Guns, Trident Armory, Smith Enterprises, Alex Arms, OFA Tactical, Spikes Tactical, Quality Arms, Idaho, Liberty Suppressors, J&T Family of Companies, American Spirit Arms, Primary Weapon Systems, Tactical Solutions, Head Down Products, Exile Machine, J&G Sales, Bravo Company USA, Ace Limited, Chris Tactical, Nemo Arms, Top Gun Supply, Red Jacket Firearms, Red Rock River Arms, Crusader Weaponry, Badger Peak, Controlled Chaos Arms, Big Horn Armory, one Sore Tactical, CMMG, SRT Arms, Norton Firearms, Umalot Industries, Warbirds Custom, JABTAC, Stoner Arms, Three Rivers Precision, 2A Firearms, Lanco Tactical, Thunderbeast Arms, 2A Armament, Rocky Top Tactical, Simplify Arms, Predator Tactical, Rhino Arms, Delmarva Shooting Supply, OJ's Gun Shop, OCS Guns, Progressive Micro Devices, Citizens Arms, C- CS Specs Magazines, MFI, Guatex Armory, Huntertown Arms, Daniel Buyer, Critical Survival, Dog Lab Arms, and Victory Defense. I know it was a long list. It's 73 now, by the way. I think it was 64 when the list was sent to me. I'd like to see it keep growing. If you know anybody in this industry, tell them about this list and tell them that maybe you'd like to see them join the list. And kudos to Old Grouch for joining the list. Uh, I'm going to send this over to uh, Vic, or I am not. Yeah, I guess I'm going to send it to him too, but I'm going to send it to, uh, uh, who was I trying to think of there? I'm sorry, Jeff at uh, Sawtooth Tactical, Jeff Sanford. Uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to join that list, and uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to add to it. I'd like to see as many people as possible in the industry. Tell these states, you know what, we don't need your business. And the more they push crap like this, the more those companies don't need their business. I mean, do you think anybody on that list right now is like, "Gee, I wish I could sell more P mags." Gee, I wish I could sell more AR uppers, or, or you know, Gee, I wish you could sell more AK parts kits or AK. Do you think there is anybody on that list right now that's going, "Man, without a contract from the state of New York, I just am not going to be able to get by." You know, I'd like to see more big names on that list. I'd like to see Glock. I'd like to see Glock say, you know what? But see the thing is Glock doesn't actually probably sell to the, the, the state of New York or the city of New York City. They're probably buying through a reseller. Um, so I'd like to see the resellers that are selling to the stand up, you know, huh? You wanna make money in this business. You wanna be in the business of providing arms then you need to understand the reason that you have such a great business, manufacturers, customizers, tactical resellers, all of you guys out there in America today that are still willing to deal with the scum that would take away the rights of the citizen. You need to understand why you have the business you do in this country today. It is because of the Second Amendment, and if it doesn't, if you don't believe me, go try to run your business in freaking France or the UK and see how much business you do. Your livelihood is dependent upon the Second Amendment. If only the police and military have guns, every small and mid-sized business and mid-sized manufacturer in this country would be out of business in five years or less without the Second Amendment. So join the list because your extinction is at stake. If you're in this industry and you allow this to go unanswered, It's not just the amendment that will fall, but the existence of people that make a living and all the jobs and all the business and all the things that it does to not just defend our country but drive our economy, all of it is gone. There will be nothing but big resellers and big manufacturers. That's all that will be left. The gun industry... You're not earning your living selling to the military and law enforcement. They're a pretty big market segment. But there's a hell of a lot more guns in the hands of independent citizens than there are in the hands of soldiers and law enforcement officers in this country. Please realize that. Please be part of this movement. Do your civic duty. If you know anybody in the industry, let them know about the list. I'll put a link in today's show notes. On this same note, I have been encouraging people in this republic to vote with their feet and find better places within the republic to reside. And I have pointed out repeatedly that the states that are taking the greatest stance against the Second Amendment and that constitutional freedom are the same states that are taking the greatest stances against all constitutional freedoms. They're the same states that are basically broke. They can't manage a checkbook. They're going. Their cities are going bankrupt. They have the highest tax rates. They're the most unfriendly to business. It's just funny. You show me a state that craps on the Second Amendment, and I will show you a state that craps on business, freedom, and, and their taxpaying citizens in general and can't even balance a budget while they're taxing their people higher than any other state. Gee, it's almost like high taxes don't work and aren't a good business climate and actually lower not raise tax revenues after a certain point of diminishing returns. Seems like the case. So one of our... Really awesome folks in our community is a guy named, we'll just call him Top Cone. He's also a member of the team working on the disaster response team now known as Citizens Assisting Citizens. I'll have a update for you um, later this week on that. They're preparing a press release for me to give out to you guys. But he said he's leaving, or he's actually he was planning on returning to New York um, when he's complete with all of his service. And now he will not be. He will not be returning to New York. And he sent an open letter to citizens of New York and its government, to several papers and elected officials. And here is his letter. I, William V. Cohn, the seventh generation to be born in Tompkins County, New York. Because of military service, I have not lived in New York for over half of my life. In that time, I kept my residency in New York because I always planned on returning when I retired. I have now given up that hope and my residency. It only seems fair to give the reason for this decision to sever ties with the state that my family has been an active part of since 1794. The final act by the government of New York has caused this is the recent passing of yet another anti-firearms law. That is the last straw. For years, I let New York State tax my income, paid the high fees to register and inspect my cars, paid high property taxes, struggled through excessive regulations, and begged for permission to own a firearm, even though it is a right listed in the Constitution, I have sworn to protect and defend. But no more. The recent oppressive law will not allow me to bring home my firearms, will make me a felon for a violent crime of having empty magazines, a crime that only exists in five other states prohibit me from ever giving my firearms to my daughters, restrict my ability to protect my family, and make it a crime to have more than seven bullets for my daughters to protect themselves with. That was too much. On top of all the other issues, the high taxes on income, high sales tax, high property tax, excessive rules on land use, restrictions on building homes, large number of fees and fines, high crime rates, the high cost of living, the low quality of roads and services, This law and new ones being proposed to take away all semi-auto rifles is too much. Some of you are saying, good riddance, we don't need your type here anyways. I'm sorry you feel that way. New York is losing a stable family that is highly educated, hardworking, and has a history of public service. No more will I pay taxes to New York State, sales, income, or any fees. I won't be setting up a business after I retire in New York. My kids are not likely to go to college in New York State or get jobs here. New York is losing a firefighter and paramedic, emergency manager, and a military veteran in me. I am an industrial engineer and a minister, ended an industrial engineer and a minister in my spouse. We won't be building our dream home that generates property tax. We won't be earning income in New York to be taxed on. We won't be paying the high cost of living that generates sales taxes. We will be retiring to some place that respects our constitutionally listed rights and does not treat us as sources of funding for others, that provides good service for the taxes they do collect and is more responsive to the voters and able to budget without massive debt servicing. We are looking at Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and New Hampshire. We will still visit, not just not as often, or, or need to as more of our family moves out of your state. I would urge others to look at how the state treats you and consider moving. If you do, write the governor and the state officials and let them know why and what the state is losing when you do. To the citizens of New York, we live in a republic. We don't have to stay where we are not wanted or treated badly. Other states are excited to have firearms owners who will work hard and are good neighbors. To the government of New York, Repealing this recent bad law won't get me to return. The state needs to make fundamental changes. It can't keep treating working citizens as piggy banks to be taxed, feed, and fined at will to fund inefficient, unneeded programs. It shouldn't and can't keep restricting the basic rights of citizens of New York. You don't own us. We will leave. William B. Cohn, Bachelor of Science, N-R-E-M-T-Dash-P. I guess it's a paramedic credential currently serving in the United States military in a unit in Wheeling, West Virginia, former taxpayer and resident of the town of Caroline, Tompkins County, CC of Governor Cuomo, Lieutenant Governor Duffy, etc., ad nauseum of other people that don't value freedom for the citizens of New York. Who? Freaking raw. And thank you, sir, for standing up for what you believe in for years as a member of the United States Army as a first sergeant uh, is someone who's looked after your soldiers very well from knowing I know you did that and now in this way and doing so publicly. Not only do I think this is awesome and I want to see more people do it later today. Um, after I publish this show I'm actually going to publish this letter on the thesurvivalpodcast.com in full and I would ask all of you that know anyone anywhere, not just the state of New York uh, that works in the newspaper or media to forward it on to them. I'm sure Top Cone would love to have other people hear his message of independence, liberty and freedom regardless of which states they reside in, both so that it can be used in free states for recruiting and uh, so that it can be used in states that are stepping on freedom, like Illinois and California and New York, okay, right, and Maryland and Connecticut and Massachusetts, right? You guys are the ones that are doing the worst of the worst. And I would like this to get as much traction as possible. And uh, it's awesome that it comes from a guy with this man's background and history of being a defender of the Constitution And and having done so in a way that's unquestionable. And we need more people like this. And let me tell you something. It will start to make a difference. It really will. It's the only thing we have left is the republic and the mobility within it. Use it. There are states, and we're not perfect. We're not perfect at all. But there are states that are closer to to liberty, and the more people with liberty as an objective that come here, the further we can move them toward the direction of liberty. Those of us living in them, we need you guys. You're being crapped on. Nobody cares. It's a terrible business climate. They have the highest unemployment rates. They have the highest tax rates, and they're crapping on your rights. Why are you still there? Freedom may just be across the border. Okay, next one comes from Ray. Ray says, I'm in a quandary here. Last year we bought 12 chickens, converted a shed into a coop, connected the coop to a 30-foot by 30-foot run. The run contains six fruit trees, two apple, two pear, two peach. Well, after learning about permaculture and watching your videos and others you link to, I now realize the chickens have done a tremendous job of consuming the ground cover in the run. There is now no grass or anything left except the trees. Stupid me. My question is, how can I get ground cover into the run to help support the system? Do I somehow plant something like clover? Do I portion off sections and seed then cover with straw and wood chips and work my way around the run? The chickens do get out for three to four hours a day during non-winter months. What the heck was I thinking? Actually, I wasn't. Thanks again. Love the podcast. Download them daily, Ray. Um, so 30 feet by 30 feet is really not that big. We're talking about 10 yards by 10 yards. And the reality is if you're going to keep those birds there on even a semi-full-time basis, that area will never be lush and green. They will continue to take it down to bare earth, scorched earth. You have a couple choices you can make. Um, you can use it as a sacrifice area and start doing a small rotation of the birds throughout the rest of your property using something like electro net fencing or significantly sized chicken tractors would be another way to go. For 12 birds, you probably want two good sized chicken tractors with six in each tractor and give that land some rest and maybe only have them in there. oh i don't know you know four days out of the month and do that and everything will kind of lush up then um, or you can accept the fact that this area is going to be a chicken run and if it's going to be a heavily used chicken run it's not going to i mean it's just not going to happen and about the only thing you can do then is start to deep deep litter mulch the whole area with straw and if you do that, you, what you're going to end up do is you're actually going to end up with very little, uh, growth in there, but they'll, you'll, they'll continuously be con- producing fertility. And then maybe you can push that fertility using something like small scale swaling and stuff that comes off of that run into other areas of your property. You can build up the area around the run. Another way that you could do this is maybe to build, I don't know, If you split it into a 15-foot-wide by 30-foot-long run, two of them, and had the room to duplicate that, so there were four areas, and the chickens were on one of each for one week at a time, so there's a 21-day rest period after a 21-day use period, if you had the space, that would work okay. That would work okay. Um, it, It would be better to have a system with maybe five to seven areas. Now, if Paul Wheaton's listening today, and since I mentioned him, he probably is, he's going to be, paddock paddock shift, paddock shift, paddock shift. Yes, Paul, we all know Paul did a great show on paddock shift, but it may or may not be feasible for this individual on your property to do that. If it is, if you can move them around with electro net fencing, and you can keep them from overgrazing any individual area, and with 12 birds, you can do that on a suburban lot as long as it works. I mean, because Paul, Paul, there's people that live in places where they can't do it because that causes problems with neighbors or certain regulations, et cetera, et cetera. But you have a quarter acre, you can move the birds every day. You can give them an area about the size of your 30 by 30. It's 30 by 30 feet. Let's think about this for a minute now. 30 by 30 feet. If we look at that... From a stand, we might be able to work with this a little more than I initially thought. Yeah, I mean, you could do four 15 by 15s with just making basically one cross fence. And that's about as small as I would want to take it down to. And you could rot- rotate them a week in each area and it's still too much. It's still too much. But it would get, it would, it would get you in a start in the right direction. The problem right now is if you were to seed it, as soon as you put them back there, they're going to eat everything and tear it all up anyway. Whatever you do, plant clover, vetch, things like that will, will grow incredibly quick. Um, you probably have great disturbed soil. As soon as it's warm enough for germination, depending on your climate, you know, you can, you can get going. If you went out there and cross-fenced it so that you ended up with four 15 by 15s, And seeded three of the four, uh, right away. And then confine them to that one area that's, that's not been seeded because you're wasting your time until the area that's, that you've seeded, you know, next is really grown up. And you might even seed them like seed the first, like let's call it area one, two, three, and four. Area one, don't seed at all. Area two, seed this week seed area 3 next week and area 4 the week after that. So they're staggered. When the birds are ready to move into to to paddock 2, let's call them mini paddocks here, shift them over and seed the first paddock that you've confined them to. And then start moving them through and, you know, as you move to the next paddock, keep reseeding and, and chasing it like that. You can probably get somewhere and at least you can get some greens into their diet, but you don't have you don't have enough movement there to really you're going to you're going to have to constantly reseed now here's the good news you can seed with things like buckwheat and pea seed and 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 Caius oat and all kinds of greens and let them get up to about 4 to 6 inches. and as long as you're seeding the right seeds at the right time of the year you can keep a lot of green in the diet of those birds and you can give them a much better environment than they have now but you'll have to constantly be reseeding. The good news is it's all cheap seed. I mean, the area you're covering, you're looking at, me, you know, you're basically there's a net gain because even though you're buying the seed and putting it down, you're getting more biomass, and they're going to eat less of it than they do of raw feed. So that would be one thing. Now, I have to say, if you built a second run of the same size, if you have the room for it, the mileage to get the room out of it, and you now had six, 15 by 15 foot areas uh, roped in for the chickens, and if you don't mind playing chicken herder, right, and moving them, they don't have to necessarily be connected to the coop. Um, you could you could put in permanent structures to do this. It would just be easier with electro fencing. Now, here's here's a wild idea. Let's combine wheaton chickens and run chickens together, and do this a little bit better because a run's usually not a 30 by 30 run. It's a pretty big run. What if we did this? You go out and get yourself some electro net fencing and you move your birds every day. You know, once they've eaten about 30 to 40% of what's in a spot, you just move them and you pulse them through your land. Your whole land's going to get better. Now in your run, when you bring them in there, you have them in there for a week, right? Let's call it eight days. Put them in Area 1 for two days, Area 2 for two days, Area 3 for two days, Area 4 for two days. This is what Paul calls a sacrifice area, but it's not even much of a sacrifice area now. So I'd go with ElectroNet fencing and put them out and paddock them every day and then bring them back into that run that you had. That's a way that you could do it Um, in the winter. It might be a little more complicated, but that would be a better solution than what you have now. And that's how you can start getting some things into there. Another thing you can do is go ahead and fence. You probably already have your trees fenced in. Maybe make the fencing around your trees a little bit bigger. Plant the heck out of cover crop, legumes and things like that inside that fencing. So basically you got a tree with a fence around it so the birds can't get to the fence. But make that circle bigger than you normally would. Not huge, just a little bit bigger. The birds can reach in there and get all those greens, but they can't get, they can't get down and scratch them up. So they can reach in there and the tree still has that symbiotic relationship. And you have like this really rich clump of growth there. Um, that would be a way to do a better job with it. Um, if you want to just do traditional runs, um, take take a look at a video called Backyard Permaculture by a guy from Australia. I'll put a link in it today if it's still available. I know Google Video like went away, so I'll see if it's still available. But if it is, he does a chicken run, two-run chicken coop type thing, and it seems to work out pretty well. That's uh, so my thoughts there. Let's take another one okay here 's a, uh, a rather gross sounding problem, but it 's not that bad. Uh, Jack, How long should I wait to plant vegetables in a bed that has had dog feces in it? I live in a town and I have a ten by fifteen foot bed that 's outside my fence yard. The other day I discovered my neighbor 's dog is neighbor has been letting his dog use the bed as a latrine all winter it 's an absolute minefield. I asked them to clean it up and stop letting stop letting it do its deed there. I have already have artichokes growing in the bed and was planning to plant some squash and cucumbers this spring. So do I need to let it sit for a year or two? Could I possibly use it this spring if it gets cleaned up right away? By the way, I live in western Oregon. We get lots of rain, so I'm pretty sure the feces is already washed into the ground. Thanks for all you do, Darren. Um man, uh I mean the first thing is get it cleaned up. That that's that's instantaneous. Like you need to I don't know if you need to put out like one of those sprinklers that goes off with motion detector or something out there or put up a small uh, additional fence around it to keep it from happening again. But don't trust your neighbor to do what you asked. Um, yeah, I would make them clean it, and if they don't, I would go through the gross process of doing it. And you're right, you got a lot of rain there, and that's good and bad. It's bad because, okay, we know we've got basically ground saturated with dog crap now. Uh, But we also have really accelerated the process of integrating into the soil, letting the microbes do their work and breaking it down. If you're going to purposefully compost dog manure, you're supposed to treat it the way you do human manure, which is a one-year process. In the ground like that, though, especially if you bring in a buttload of additional organic matter, I would say you could go ahead and plant into it this year. What I would not plant is anything low-growing. I wouldn't plant cucumbers or, well, unless they were trellised. I wouldn't plant, I would not I would not mess with leafy greens this year. No lettuce, no spinach, no bush beans. Anything would have direct soil contact, I would not plant. I would kind of treat it like planting over the leach field of a septic system for a year. You can do it, but anything that you're using there better not touch the ground. Uh, And you may just do things like if you plant tomatoes, any of the tomatoes that form within six inches of the ground and could get some splatter or whatever, just remove them. And that will put all the energy into the things higher up. But anything needs to be trellised or staked that goes in there, and I would bring in quite a bit of additional organic matter, which is a good idea anyway, but wood chips, rotted straw, things like that. And I always say deep mulch, but in this case, it's even a bigger issue, right? Cause that reduces the potential for anything that's pathogenic there. The good news is within a year, your worries are over. Nature will fix it. This isn't like somebody dumped toxic sludge there or lead or, you know, cesium or something. It's dog poo. Um, but man, that's, uh, that's too bad. So I, I wouldn't over stress it. But it sounds like like the dog liked the prepared area and, like, really laid it on heavy. I mean, if it was like, well, a dog crapped in there half a dozen times, I'd be like, dig it in, you know, get rid of the stuff that's on the surface, dig it in, mulch it, and go to town. But if it's been heavily done, there is a risk of contamination bacteria and things like that because dogs being omnivores, it doesn't have a rapid breakdown and safe use for things like, you know, cow manure and things like that they break down much faster. Um, yeah, and, you know, you might not have that greater results anyway the first year because you probably have a lot of residual salt because where dogs poop, they also pee. So I don't know how much urine has been dropped there. That's a good nitrogen source, but it's also a salt source. Um, if you look at a place where a dog pees all the time in the same place, it goes from being a good thing to a bad thing. You'll see the grass turn brown or what have you. So get it fenced in. If you're going to plant at it at all, plant something that grows tall and above ground, corn. You know, I mean, you're not going to have any problems growing corn there. Um, or, again, something that's staked, trellised up high. And maybe prepare another bed. Maybe go ahead and prepare another bed. Uh, this would be a good you know, year to do that. We'll kind of rest this one. If you had space to garden, I would not not use it if it's the only space you have. If you had space to garden, it might be a really good idea this year to come in there and as soon as it's warm enough, plant it with buckwheat. Six weeks later, you know, cut it down, plant it with buckwheat again. Six weeks later, do it again. Build up the organic matter naturally, and then going into your fall, plant a good group of winter legumes like vetch and stuff like that. Just rest it for a year. Then you know you're good, and you're going to have dynamite results next year. And what is a problem has now become a solution because we'll have sufficient time to break down. If it's the only place, thick mul- remove the problem, prevent a recurrence, thick, heavy mulch, nothing that touches the ground this year. Um, no leafy greens that's your big risk no onions no carrots nothing below the ground this year but tall things above ground I, I i wouldn't hesitate to do unless you can create some more space for yourself good question interesting problem and uh goes back to the uh the old saying good fences make good neighbors seems like there's a lot with gardening i thought i answered this question but i keep getting it So maybe I didn't. I was really busy last week. I don't remember if I did this last week or the week before or not. If I'm repeating it, just know that there's so many people asking it that obviously uh, I need to do it again. It's on composting. What are greens and browns when it comes to compost? I was listening to you a few weeks ago. You were talking about horse manure was a green because of the way a horse digests its food. Not exactly right, but we'll let that go for now. Now, just by listening, I have assumed that browns are poop and greens are plant matter. Yes, no. The reason I'm going to ask, I'm building my woody beds now, and I've been working with them since December in my spare time. I have had and i'm getting close to start filling them up i need to know what to fill them up with and how much of it manure versus plant matter or should i seek out only one or the other please help i'm confused thanks for all you do uh for for what you're asking to do it doesn't really matter um you want compost as like a top dressing or mixed in with the soil you're adding back to your woody beds the primary thing you should be putting on your woody beds is soil though just plain old soil if you've extricated in an area to put the wood into the ground somewhat there's your first bit of it if not if you can take some soil from around the surrounding area and use material you have that's kind of the best place to start enriching it with organic matter etc is a good thing um, but when we talk about building a hugel mound or a woody bed we should be filling the core with wood or wood fiber or you know if you you could do something like Grow an ass load of vetch and basically bale it up like hay and make that your core. That was a solution Paul had to my wood shortage problem. It would probably work fairly well. That's um, not really, but the core of a hugga culture bed definitely ain't a big pile of manure. But looking at it from a standpoint of composting, which is the issue when we start talking about greens and browns, what we need when we want to compost something, we're basically burning a biochemical fire. That's why, and it literally is. We're we're creating a bacterial environment where bacteria are breaking things down and literally thermogenetically burning and breaking down the material. That's why if you pull a compost heap open that's that's inactive composting and stick your hand in there for long enough, it'll burn the hell out of you. Gets over 160 degrees in there. Thermogenic, biogenic fire. Okay. Well, the carbon is the fuel, and the nitrogen. It, or the, the carbon is the is the material. Let's say the the uh, the the uh, let's say it's the fuel, right? And the nitrogen is the accelerant, right? The nitrogen is the gas, and the carbon is the fire log. Together, and together they'll burn, right? Or you could look at it as oxygen and fuel if you want to. But just understand, we need both of them in the mix. We need high carbon, high nitrogen. Just about anything that's a, that's a brown, that's a carbon, is going to have some nitrogen. And just about anything that's a nitrogen, let's say green clippings. We've just gone out and we've mowed a big patch of clover. We've got a whole bunch of green, chopped up clover. There's some carbon there. There's some cellulose fiber material. But what's dominant is either nitrogen or carbon. So we call it greens and browns and composting because a lot of composting is done without manure at all anyway. Okay, So the green stuff, the plants that are green are nitrogen. The plants that are brown are carbon, okay? The nitrogen's kind of gone away from them, they've lost it. So wood chips and clover, perfect green and brown. Wood chips and brown dropped leaves uh, would be carbon and then maybe um, clover and grass clippings, nitrogen, you mix that together, okay? So it's not about the really, it's not really about the color, Right, It's just that plant sources, when they're green, you got nitrogen. When they're brown, you got carbon. That's why they call them that. The reason that we would look at horse manure or cow manure or chicken manure is a green is because it's high in nitrogen. It has much more nitrogen than carbon in it. So if we take horse manure and we mix it with wood chips, we will get a composting action. We'll get a nitrogen-carbon match to the flame, and it will go. Right? So it's not really the color, it's just a generic term. The big thing with composting, that's, that's what you got, and there's all these different people with perfect ratios and stuff like that. If you make a good mix of nitrogen and carbon, and I don't care where the nitrogen comes from or where the carbon comes from, and they're broken down small enough that they can, they can start to interact with each other, you will get compost. And the best use of compost as you're filling up your hoogle beds is maybe mixing some in, just kind of make, you know, do a layer of soil and then a, a thick layer of soil, a thin layer of compost, a thick layer of soil, a thin layer of compost, and just keep doing that. And the soil organisms will take care of tilling it for you. You don't have to mix it up in your wheelbarrow the way I did with the first one I did. I just felt like doing it. Uh, nature will fix it. And then a nice layer, maybe an inch deep or more of compost on the surface, and then a big thick layer of mulch. That's, that's the recipe for success with hugel mounds, in-ground hugel beds, non-hugel beds. I don't care what it is. If you're using good soil, uh, just native soil, any good soil, sandy soil, I don't care what it is. As long as it's a decent soil, there's nothing wrong with it, right? It's not like, you know, pH isn't like four or something like that. And, and you're using good organic material and you, you'll get success. And it doesn't matter if it's a hugel bed, it doesn't matter if it's a plain old raised bed. Um, that's, that's the recipe for success. Compost, organic matter, thick, heavy mulching. Um, but good question. Hopefully that kind of, conf- you know, ends the confusion, uh, that a lot of people seem to have with composting and greens and browns. Because boy, I, I have gotten that question, I bet 15 times in the last two weeks. Let me just add to the person asking the question. What you do not want to do, absolutely do not want to do, is take uncomposted manure and and cover your bed with it because it's... It's it's at a point where if it's not compost, especially things like chicken manure and cow manure, the nitrogen levels are so high, they haven't broken down and combined with other things, you'll literally burn the roots of your plants. So don't do that. I mean, you've got to compost most manures. The manures that you can use with no composting would be manures from animals that move around and just drop it wherever they go. Uh, that are safe animals for that, like chickens, like cattle. If it's spread out through paddock shift, it'll take care of itself because it's not highly concentrated. Or when you're looking at just using it and layering it on, um, rabbits. Rabbits are probably the best source of fertility you can get. You can just take basic rabbit pellets and just throw them on the soil. You can do it to your heart's content and you're good to go. Uh, goats are, are pretty similar in, in that respect. Goats and sheep... Um, you know, if it looks like a deer turd, if you know what deer poop looks like, it's probably pretty safe to use right into a bed. It really is. They they have a totally different um, type of uh, poop uh, manure than, let's say, a cow. If you've ever watched a cow take a crap, it's really disgusting looking. It's a big pile of sludge, nitrogen-rich goop. It's, it's, it's gnarly as heck. Once they dry up, you can... You, frankly, you can burn them in a fire or make houses out of them. It. It's not that big a deal. But when they come out, if it comes out like that, it's going to be high in nitrogen. And using a lot of it in one place before it's composted will do more harm than good. Um, next question, you've got a 401k question. I've got a financial question for you. Just got a new job at IBM. I had an unmatched 401k. I got twenty seven grand in it. With my previous employer, IBM has a 401k where they match 50 cents on the dollar, up to a 6% of my contribution. I also get stock options with them. I have 26k in cash and savings. I also have two ounces of gold. I have no bills other than my cell phone and my apartment, own my car and a boat. Should I roll over the money in the regular IR 401k with IBM or a Roth? Everyone's just telling me to max out my contributions to 401k Ah, in stocks. Geez, yeah, gee, that's what everyone says. Yeah, how'd everyone do in the last couple of years? Ask them that. And I agree, but personally, I have no trust in financial institutions or the stock market. Thanks for everything, Mark. Since the last statement was made the way it was, I have no trust or faith in these institutions. I have to answer this question two ways: one, the way it was asked, and two, from that angle. After I give you the long answer, okay. You are not going to roll your 401k from your existing employer into your IBM 401k. You're not going to do it for a couple of reasons. One, if you convert it to a Roth, you have to pay penalties. Now that it's already in there as a conventional, you're most likely better off leaving that money in there as a conventional. You, you really probably are if you're going to, cause you're going to take almost the same hit to convert it as to extract it. Not quite as bad, but almost. You're gonna pay tax. you're not gonna pay a penalty, but you're gonna pay taxes on hundred percent of the money. Now let's look at it this way though. If your tax rate on, let's see, twenty seven K, if your tax rate's ten percent, you're gonna, you know, it's but it's not gonna be twenty, so twenty seven hundred, man, no. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it as a conventional. But I don't think IBM's gonna let you roll your previous 401k into their 401k, and the whole point is why the hell would you wanna do that anyway? If it's in an employer's 401k, you have the least amount of control over it, period. You can't withdraw it if you change your mind. So I would roll it into a conventional IRA or a self-directed IRA, which we talked about recently, And if you're, if you're going to leave it in uh, a tax-deferred status. Put it in a place where you have 100% control over the type of investment, where you're not picking from five stock funds, you're picking from five million stock funds. So roll that into a traditional IRA that you have full control over. You can set up a broker's account with, and you can say, I want to invest in this, that, or the other thing. Do that, or if you decide you don't want the money in in an IRA anymore, pay the penalties and fees, take the money, and get it outside of that vehicle. It's up to you. I only say that at your age and at this current time because it says at the end, I have no trust in financial institutions or the stock market. Now, let's talk about the new IBM 401k. Before you just start sticking money into it, in spite of the $0.50 on the dollar match, start out by looking at the funds in the 401k that are offered to you. Are there any of them you actually want to own? And if the answer is no, don't buy them with your money or anybody else's. If there's some funds in there, do you think this would be an okay place for my money? When you start your job with IBM, set up a Roth 401k, not a conventional, a Roth. That way when you leave IBM, be it 10 years, 10 days, 10 months, whatever from now, whatever you've put in plus the vested portion can go with you to a Roth IRA, which is a thousand times better, okay, a thousand times better than a conventional one. It really is. So the new one we'd set up is a Roth. The only reason I would even consider this is they have a Roth and they have to have 50 cent on the dollar match. If you put in 10% of your money into this, and that's a little high probably, but you know what, you're young and you have very small bills and you can afford to do it, you can always reduce it, you're effectively saving 15%, Okay. You are going to pay taxes on the money as it's contributed. Now, you will have to ask your HR person, and they're probably too stupid to know, so the plan administrator, whoever, does the 50% match get taxed, or is it seen as a gain? Okay, so here's what I mean. Let's say you put in $100 this month, and, and, and IBM put in $50. Depending on how that plan is set up, you may actually pay tax on the fifty-dollar contribution. You probably do not, because it gets very complicated. Then, with do you have the only way that can happen is if you have instant vesting, because you're paying tax on money you haven't actually received yet. So, so what that would really mean is you're going to pay tax on a hundred and not pay tax on fifty. The good news is you'll never pay tax on that fifty. Okay, you'll get the money at retirement a hundred percent. But the the part you're looking at. To analyze here is let's say 10 years from now you quit IBM and go off and do your own thing and become a master super duper programmer extraordinaire and you're going to set up your own version of the small guy's IBM and whoop their ass or whatever you want to do. You want to go out and, I don't know, hunt chickens for a living. Whatever it is you want to do. And you decide, you know what, I put a lot of money in there during those 10 years. I'd like some of that money back now, please. When you leave, you roll it into a Roth IRA. You add up all your financial contributions that you paid taxes onto. If you then choose to, you can withdraw that money with no interest, no penalties, no taxes, no nothing because it was already taxed. The only money you'll be required to keep locked in that till 59 and a half or older is going to be the money your employer matched and the gains on the money that you put in. So you have the ability to extricate unless they that is a loophole that I guarantee you it was an unattended consequence when the government set this up that they didn't close that loophole that they didn't put that I think that one of the first things they might do is put a restriction on that money all right so you got to pay attention to them that might be one of their first four ways into changing IRAs and 401ks but right now that is the case You can get, and I did not know that when I started doing this show. I had a couple different people get in touch with me and correct me on it and show me for fact that you can do that. So, this is the other thing to understand though. While you're at IBM, as long as you're there, you're probably not going to get any money out of that account unless you borrow it. And if you don't pay it back, it causes a lot more problems than it's worth. So, it's much better for you at this point to whatever you're going to do, if it's going to be an IBM, do a Roth. But if you want some more money saved up for future planning that maybe before you're retired, be careful of how big the contribution is you make. But the other side of this is, if you look at the plan and you don't like the options in it, in spite of the match, you may be better off elsewhere. You're very, very young. You're 32. It does matter when you're 32, right? Because that 50% has a long time for inflation to eat it anyway. I mean, that's that's really one way to look at this. Like, they're giving you the 50%, right? This is something that people don't get about IRAs and 401ks. Unless they perform well, the money may have been better used put to work for you by establishing a business with it or paying off a home early because the 50% is just as subject to the evils of inflation as the 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 100% of your contribution. So you're effectively being paid that money today but you're not able to collect it in your case for over 20 years. So it's important that you look at that and understand if I just do it for the 50 percent and I go with safe options and only return one or two percent bond funds or something like that, um, then, you know, is it really worth that much 25 years from now? And the answer is probably not. There's another thing at play here. Because of the way they've changed the management of these 401ks. I remember when I had a regular old job in a 401k. If I wanted to get my money out of my 401k and even if I was still working, I said, I, I can't, I need the money. I could go cash it out. I could just get the money out. I could just liquidate it. I could take my money and I could haul ass. Okay? Now, I could have done that. If there was an economic collapse around the corner and I saw it and I could have taken the cash and bought silver. Yeah, they would have dinged me on the taxes and penalties, but I could have got it out. Now that money is captive. So at the worst possible turn in the economy, the worst possible time, and everybody's losing their jobs. You have to be lucky in holding on to your job. At the same time, you can't get access to your funds. And you're faced with the choice. Leave a job when nobody has one or get access to your funds. So be very careful with your 401k contribution percentages of your savings. I like 401s and IRAs. I want my finger on the pulse of things at all times in case they try a rules change. I want to be Roth at all times so at least a significant portion can be extracted without interest in penalties. That's my philosophy uh, I pretty much answer the question the same way every time, but this was a different situation and a, and a good opportunity to give you different ways to look at why it's not as not much a no-brainer as all the HR people and coworkers and everybody say, oh, just go all in and buy stocks. <laughs> yeah, okay, and you look at the bath some of these people have taken over the last 10 years. My father used to tell me something. He used to tell me, son, never take advice from someone unless they're doing at least as good as you or better. And I think that's very, very well put. And he was pretty clear that he didn't mean like were they doing better at you than you at all things. Okay. In other words, you could be better than someone overall financially, right? But it came down to a specific thing they were doing, and they had a track record for a long time of being really good at that thing that made you, and you didn't. That you could take advice on that one thing. But if, if they can't manage a checkbook and they're telling you how to invest your money, you don't really need to take advice from them. They're telling you how, how to grow food. They don't even have a garden. Don't take advice from them. They're telling you what the best fish bait is. You've never seen them catch fish. Don't take advice from them. They're not qualified to give you advice because they don't have a track record of success. Even if they're only moderately successful, if they're more successful than you, following their advice probably is not a bad idea to step to learning more. But God forbid you take advice on investing from people who have had their clocks cleaned three times in 15 years and still don't get it. Okay? You know, people are like, yeah, well, a stock went down uh, by 50%, but it went back up 40% next year, so I'm just as good. No, you're not. If a stock goes down by 50% one year, just to get your money back, it has to go 100% up. If they can't figure out that math, don't take their advice. Here's another pretty good little piece of uh, news. Um guy named J.G. sent me an email, and this is down in Texas, which is kind of cool, and I think I know the people making the food from a recent article in um, Acres USA magazine. I can't confirm that. I don't have time to dig out my Acres USA magazine right now, but I think I just read about them last month or the, this month in the latest issue. Uh, but here's the email. My brother has been in contact with Tilapia Feed Supplier and got them to make a healthy food for aquaponics. I just wanted to let the community know in case they might be interested. Here's this post from Facebook with some details. If you want to know more, just announce it on the show. Uh, thanks. Just got my quail. and would love to do some barter with you. I'm in the South Fort Worth area. Thanks for everything, brother. I didn't even notice that when I scanned this email. I'll be getting in touch with JG, and uh, we can talk about that uh, pretty soon here. Uh, okay, here's the announcement, though, and I'm going to put a link to where it's on Facebook. New at Sand Creek Farm, soy-free, GMO-free, floating tilapia feed. It has taken about a year and a lot of time working with several different fish feed manufacturers, but we finally got it done. Yeah, healthy tilapia feed that is soy-free, GM-free, and it floats. You may wonder why floating is so important. If the feed sinks or disintegrates, the tilapia cannot eat it and the particulates dump into your aquaponic system and pile up. Those go toxic and kill your fish. Bad plan for sure. Maybe we've just learned why some aquaponic systems crash all of a sudden out of nowhere. We went to the top of the line tilapia feed manufacturer in the continental United States, Rangan, based in Idaho, and asked their nutritionist to formulate for us. And it took them a few weeks, and now the feed is ready. To sweeten the deal, Rangan has a te- So this is not what I thought. It's not the guy I thought it was. Anyway, Rangan has a Texas plant... And now that we have completed the first phase, the Texas location can produce for all of us. Don't you love the idea of increasing the work in Texas for Texans by Texans? Good job, Ragman. We have a 6,000-pound minimum order requirement, so we want to share it with others. If you can use 6,000, let's go in together because the larger the run, the lower the production cost. If you are feeding tilapia and want soy-free, GMO-free, fluting tilapia feed, contact the farm for pricing. Support at sandcreekfarm.net. Again, support at sandcreekfarm.net. We will probably plan to order quarterly at this time, so use the time frame for your feed calculations. As more people start wanting quality tilapia feed, we can order more often. That's awesome. That's awesome. That is hugely awesome as far as I'm concerned because the last thing I want to do is go through all the crap to set up aquaponics and then have to feed my tilapia this very GMO soy that I'm trying not to eat because what goes into them goes into me. There's some things you can do with duckweed and black soldier fly larvae and stuff. But if you're going to do aquaponics, especially on any significant scale, you're going to have to be buying some feed. So I think this is a great thing. I'll put a link to the Facebook post uh, by Sand Creek Farms. And uh, it does bring something up interesting, though. The guy I was thinking of in Acres Magazine, I don't remember the name of his farm or whatever, but he has like a 20 acre place, but he was farming 10 of it, and he was, you know, just kind of getting by, and he's an older guy, he's like in his 70s or 80s, and he started doing organic feed. And instead of just growing it, what he did is he took the rest of his property, put it in silos, and started buying all the organic feed he could get his hands on. And the whole point was that people have been growing stuff, it's hard for them to, 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 to you know, justify doing the organic thing with growing grains because um, it, it doesn't sell at enough of a premium and they can't maybe move it fast enough to, to make it worth doing. But since he's willing to basically buy whatever you can get to him, all of a sudden they have a market. That means the supply. Now, so this guy's created a business out of thin air, and he's also in Texas. I'll look up that, uh, that edition of Acres and let you know who I'm talking about. But it, this is this is just the same thing. If there is a demand, the business will appear, okay? If you build it, they will come. Well, if you desire it and will pay for it, they will build it. It's really the way it really works, okay? So if you have something that you think is needed, then try to find enough people that agree with you that are willing to actually pay for it. And surprise, surprise, somebody will probably be willing to produce it. It's almost like the free market knows what the heck it's doing, isn't it? Um, Here's another question. Jack, can you explain, and this is from Mike in Indiana, how I would begin a new garden without using a tiller. Specifically, I wondered about tilling. Growing up, we had a garden and would till year after year. I've researched some of the thought process behind not tilling a garden every year, and it does make sense to me. My question would be, What do I do with the land to prepare it for my garden? If I'm not gonna be tilling to prep the garden, should I just not try to get the grass and weeds out? I'm gonna raise chickens in the garden area, but I'm curious if the grass and weeds would return after I seal the chickens out and plant the garden. Thanks, Mike from Indiana. Okay, let's give the short, quick way that you do this. You get a bunch of cardboard, you put it down where you want your beds, especially if you have good soil. And I don't mean great soil, but I mean soil you can dig in. It's not full of rocks and you don't have to go immediately to a raised bed model. You put down a bunch of cardboard or thick newspaper. I'm talking 10 sheets of layer or thicker of newspaper. You soak the heck out of it. You lay down a huge thick layer of uh, compost. Or other good, you know, topsoil with a compost mixture, maybe two to four inches thick on top of the cardboard or newspaper. On top of that, lay down a good four inches of mulch. It could be wood chips, it could be rotted straw, it could be anything like that. And that is it. And plant down into your um, your compost layer, not in the wood chips directly and as your plants come up backfill around their their bases with the wood chips once they're up for you and water really really good especially at first so that that cardboard begins to become soaked saturated stays that way and breaks down and by the time that all happens all the stuff underneath it is dead all the worms and everything's come in there and they do all the tilling underground without actually turning it over for you keep a big thick layer of mulch on top of things you won't have problems with weeds The reason that everybody that tills is convinced that weeds will always come back is because they till. When you till, think about this. When you till, any of the seeds that are laying on top of the soil but are not in the soil and can't germinate get mixed up and put into the soil so they can germinate. Tilling causes weeds, period. Tilling is the cause of weed infestation. Now, If you just leave a place alone and do nothing with it, eventually it will get colonized by these things we call weeds. But if we mulch with a thick layer of mulch, they can't really get into the soil. It isn't so much that the mulch prevents the weeds from germinating, it keeps them above the soil. There will be some weeds that get in there. They will germinate. And when you go to pull them out in a, a system created this way, you will grab them and gently pull them and all, them and all of their roots will just come out beautifully. They'll be, it'll be easier to go through and, ha- go through and hand weed it or re- weed it with a rake once in a while, uh, than it will be to till it every year. The other problem with tilling is every time you till, let's say the tiller's going down six inches. you know what you're creating at seven inches? Compacted soil. Because right where the tiller tongs reach the bottom, they're packing the soil tight. Plus, you're bringing all the weed seeds into the soil so it can germinate. You're giving the weeds what they want. Plus, you're killing the life in the soil. The reason tilling creates such a burst of energy is all the things that are alive in there die, and you're growing on their bodies, right? So that would be one way. But you said you have chickens. Okay. Paul, if you're still listening, I'm going to piss you off. I don't care. It's just a chicken, and you could do this for a period of time. You could go in there. Build yourself chicken tractors or a movable chicken run in the dimensions a little bit larger than you want for your beds. So if you wanted to have four foot by eight foot beds, build yourself what effectively is a temporary chicken tractor of about five foot by ten foot. Put your chickens in there. Let them scorch the earth. Let them take it down. You just heard the other caller. That's his problem. There ain't the left. Okay, then when the chickens are done, come in with a layer of compost and a layer of mulch. Now you don't have to do your your your, um, your approach with uh, cardboard or newspaper, though it probably would actually be a decent idea because there may be some stuff left there. But if you let them take it down, you've got a perfectly prepared area. And because you're putting a layer of soil or mixed compost and soil on top of it, you're going to mitigate the fact that there's uncomposted chicken manure there. It's a wide enough spread out area and a fast enough breakdown into that environment. You're not going to have over nitrogen. And you'll find that the longer you garden, specifically as long as you keep bringing in mulch, right, the less weed problems that you'll have. But I'm telling you, that even weeds like dandelions and what have you like the beds that you guys saw me cultivate for so many years in Arlington those beds when we left were 5 years old when a dandelion came up in one of those beds a dandelion big giant taproot it came out like pulling a card a carrot it just ploop right out of there just ploop and you know what i do with weeds when i pull them out of my garden i just drop them on top of the mulch they just become more mulch i love weeds i love weeds Now, if I had a lot of weeds, I probably wouldn't love them anymore. But the little bit of weeds that I get in my gardens, I love them. They are mining nutrients from my soil, and all I have to do is just pick them up and drop them right where they're at. And all of a sudden, all those nutrients that they're mining become bioavailable to my plants. The other thing you can do to minimize your weeds with gardening, in addition to mulching, in addition to everything we've talked about, is plant a lot of stuff. The more stuff you plant, the less weeds you shall have. Okay. So good, close, high density planting. I don't do as high dense as bio intensive like I used to, or even as high dense as square foot generally. Uh, but, but closer than the seed packet sets, right? Reduce the spacing recommendations on the plant. If you buy the plants already started and they have a little thing that says, you know, space X, Y, and Z, uh, or the seed packet by around 20%. That's 20% less space for the weeds to become active. And and it really isn't as hard, and I think that this is the big problem. Whenever anybody comes at this and and you tell them they don't have to till, and they say, but weeds will come. You know why they say that is because they've always tilled. And it's very hard for us to stop doing something we've always done and had some success with. But I'm going to ask you a question, okay? Are your gardens weed-free when you till? And I don't mean the day you've tilled. I mean, through, do you get through your season of gardening without having weed problems with your tiller? And I know what the answer is. No. And when you go to plant in the spring, are your gardens weed-free? Or the reason you're tilling is because there's, there's weeds everywhere. So how can you tell me that tilling is what you use to control weeds when you're literally propagating weeds so fast that the thing's completely grown in in a single season? So anybody with a tiller, I ask them, how much time do you spend pulling weeds? And they usually say, oh, well, quite a bit. But if I didn't have this tiller, oh, oh boy, it would be worse. No, it won't. No, it won't. No, it won't. How many weeds do you see on the floor of a forest with thick layers of mulch and leaves that the trees have provided? And the answer is very little. Most forests, once they mature, they're completely open. You walk in there. Now, there's, a, there's, there's a shade. That's what your plants do. That's why I say plant them closer together. And there's that thick layer of mulch. The seed has to get down to the soil layer. If you have four inches of wood mulch on top of your garden bed or even three, please tell me how that seed is going to make contact with your soil. It's going to stay on top of the wood. The wood is mostly dry. Even when it rains, the top dries very, very rapidly. The seed... Only the certain seeds are going to finally get started they're going to have to stick their roots into that mulch layer and they're going to fight for it and fight they're going to finally get some soil're like, "aha, I'm established down, they're going to start growing and you're going to come along and go ploop. right and half of their root system is in loose mulch you know it's it's just so much of an easier method it really is. Um, the key is to make sure you don't have a ton of stuff under there coming up through that's well-established and into the dirt. So either the cardboard method, uh, very, very thick newspaper method with the, uh, with the mulch on top of it, or go ahead and scorch the earth with chickens, and Paul can cry for their souls, and they'll be happy chickens, and they'll be just fine. And don't treat them like that every day of their lives. But if you want to use them to clear an area, hey, they can work for their chicken feed. I don't have a problem with it. Here's a quick one. Backup power system saved my Super Bowl Sunday. Dear Jack, Super Bowl Sunday, we were running late for a party. After 24 hours of brining and smoking a Boston butt for pulled pork, it was time to leave. I had barely shredded the pork and put it in the crock pot, but didn't have any time to continue bringing it up to serving temperature and soak in all the drippings. Then it dawned on me, cook while you drive. I pulled the 400-watt inverter out of my truck, plugged in the crock pot into it, turned it on high, and started the car. By the time I was done... With 30 minute drive, the pulled pork was steaming and I had ready to serve dish when I arrived. This never would have been possible, albeit a minor problem, if I hadn't listened to the Survival Podcast and Stephen Harris on backup power systems. My wife and party friends were quite impressed with how nifty, and often this could really save them time running late or not. Giving them a real-life example made it easy to sell them on preparedness and how convenient backup systems can be. Needless to say, they were shocked to hear that their car was also their house's generator. Kevin in San Antonio, Texas. How cool is that, folks? That's awesome. And with that, I think we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up the show today. It went about an hour and a half. I know it's like, it's like one o'clock right now. I probably won't get this show published till almost two. I got started doing this show about the time I'm usually finishing it up. Dude had to dig out from about 500 emails that came in that weren't fully responded to while I was away. Um, if you've emailed me with anything that you're expecting an answer to, and as of the time you hear this, you do not hear an answer, I did not get your email, it went into the spam monster filter, something happened to it, uh, or you're just not getting an answer. That's always possible. But if it's something you really expect, like if you sent video for Jack, comment for Jack, I don't answer those anymore. I don't have time. But if you sent me an email where you're like, I think he'll answer this, and I didn't, you may want to resend it um, because, and I know I'm asking for, Pain and punishment here uh, by being nice because of that. I don't know how many people will do that and add to tomorrow's email, but uh, I get caught up pretty quickly. But this morning, um, I was smoking through whatever got not picked up while I was on the road. As fast as I possibly could, and it's highly possible that you might have sent me an email that I would normally respond to, and I deleted it without reading it. I scanned it too quickly. Um, I try to be as accessible to the audience as I possibly can. Uh, There's limits to what I can do there, but I do try to answer just about every email that comes in. So if you're thinking, man, that guy, I figured he would have answered me by now. uh, and I didn't resend your email. And don't think, well, he's busy. Yeah, I'm busy, but I'm telling you, if you emailed me um, from this morning back and didn't get an answer yet, you're not getting one unless you send it again. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget. Can't pay. Nobody up there cares. They're leaving.